Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and thank you as always for joining me here. It is Wednesday, September 25th and I got a great show lined up for you here today. In about 10 minutes, I'll be speaking with David Fisman, an expert on mosquitoes and mosquito-borne illnesses. There have been several reported cases in Michigan and Massachusetts of people contracting and even dying from eastern equine encephalitis. What is this disease and how deadly is it? And is it something that we as Canadians should be aware of? What was that clip? Was it super annoying? Well, for me, it definitely was. And yet I decided to play it anyway. So I will be talking, as I said, about mosquitoes in a little bit. There is also some concerns when it comes to the overall rise in mosquito-borne illnesses as a whole because of global warming. So it's not just a story here in North America, of course. It's always a big story when it comes to what's happening in third world countries as well when it comes to mosquitoes and mosquito-borne illnesses. There was a story I saw where a resident of uh, Miracle Beach, though, here in uh, Vancouver Island, referred to the mosquito population there uh, like a scene from the apocalypse. This was earlier this summer. Uh, A couple had moved to the area about a year ago and were quickly made aware of what they were moving into. They said there that you have to dress like it's winter time. Now, obviously, that's not something we need to worry about here in the Kamloops area, but I just wanted to bring it up as I feel that it highlights just the fact that the mosquito population is indeed growing on a global scale. And yes, mosquitoes are one of, if not the deadliest creature on Earth. Think about that. I mean, it's probably not news, but just to reiterate, I mean, when we're talking about deadly creatures, I mean... It's not some big scary monster that's responsible for killing a lot of people. It isn't sharks. Nope, sharks only account for about six deaths a year. It isn't lions. No, lions only account for about 250 deaths per year. How about closer to home? Are bears a big problem? Nope. Bears have killed just 17 people here in B.C. since 1986. It's a pretty small number. Again, it's not any real terrifying beast that we need to be afraid of. No, rather, it is one of the most annoying creatures on Earth. And no matter where you go, it seems to be pretty difficult to escape from. So, if you want to know more just about how deadly this stupid little pest can be, Stick around to hear what David Fisman has to say. And I guess I should uh, probably point it out since I pointed out how many people have been killed by all these other animals over the course of the last little while. Mosquitoes kill more than 700,000 people every year and account for 17% of the estimated global burden of infectious diseases. 700,000 people. (laughs) Can you believe that? Sharks. Sharks. Kill what? What did I say? Six deaths a year. Lions, about 250. Bears, less than one a year here, at least in B.C. So uh, numbers are higher there, but I got the B.C. stats to keep it close to home. But when we're talking about mosquitoes, on a global scale, 700,000. What a stupid little bug. So we'll talk about more about that at about uh, 9.20. And to end today's program, I will be joined by the Executive Director for the BC Paramedic Association. Now, Scott Ramey will be on to talk about the changes that are going to come into effect to the way that 911 is administered here in the province. 
Health Minister Adrian Dix announced that these 14 changes will be coming into effect. Uh, that was uh, on Monday, I believe, he made the announcement. An independent investigation began into potential changes after an incident in Vancouver in November of last year. Uh, a drug-addicted 56-year-old woman called 911 for help as she was bleeding profusely. And if you aren't aware of the incident, Tracy Gunderson called 911 as she clearly knew that something was wrong with her. She was able to provide dispatch with her exact location. She unlocked her door to make sure there was easy access to her apartment and basically followed all the necessary steps that were given to her to make sure that she could get the help that she needed. However, it took 35 minutes for paramedics to get there, by which time, of course, it was too late. The reason? She lives in a high-rise building, and it took a long time to gain access to the building. It didn't take them so long necessarily to get to the building, but to actually get up to her apartment took longer than expected. I myself live in a high-rise here in downtown Kamloops, and this is a, a pretty scary incident for me. Now, I personally am not too worried about myself being in such a situation, uh, but I guess, to be fair, nobody really is until you're in that situation. Now, Gunderson's building required a special fob to gain access into the building and to the elevator. And, of course, when you're trying to get up to those higher floors, the elevator is a mightily important time saver. And by the time the paramedics got there, like I had mentioned, it was too late. She had no pulse. It took 35 minutes. That is not the kind of response that people expect uh, when it comes to their lives being in danger. Maybe we have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations sometimes of how quickly we should be getting response. But nonetheless, 35 minutes, I think, is beyond uh, what we expect in terms of lateness. So, obviously, an issue here that brought forth uh, a concern that is now being addressed by the B.C. government. Now, sure, this happened in Vancouver, but like I said, who's to say it couldn't happen here? I live on an eighth-floor apartment. I see new apartments being built or, or, or being proposed here. So, who's to say it couldn't happen here in Kamloops? So it only makes sense that the Ministry of Health take a look at this issue. Now, on Monday, as I mentioned, Adrian Dick said these 14 recommendations that were made by this independent review panel will be implemented. Some of these recommendations include BC emergency health services dispatchers always having easy and obvious access to important information related to the scene. That seems like something that should have already been a thing, no? But, oh, okay. Um... All responding emergency services should have clear and robust processes to gain rapid access to a multi-unit building, and building codes should be reviewed and revised to enable such rapid access when necessary. Again, it's hard to believe a policy like that wasn't already in place. And just to point out that some of these things are really baffling to me that, you know, they had to be recommended. Uh, this one actually really shocked me. It's recommendation number seven. It says, uh, resuscitation equipment should always be carried to the patient's side or stage nearby initially unless it is absolutely clear that the patient will not require resuscitation. It's kind of scary to think like something like that wasn't already being done. Um, you would think that you know, if someone's calling for help, there's always the possibility that they need resuscitation. And uh, the fact that, I mean, and I'm sure our paramedics were already doing stuff like that, but it doesn't change the fact that it wasn't policy, and it's sort of baffling. So Dix obviously called this case in Vancouver very serious. He, uh, quote, says it's a tragic case, it's a heartbreaking case, and acknowledged that there are lessons to be learned. And that's why he put forward this investigation. So I'll be getting a response from the BC Paramedics Association, all of that at the tail end of the show. So stick around for that. Like I said, it's an important issue and something that uh, I think definitely had... Um, 
a reason for a response from the BC government. And uh, thankfully, they did take the time to look into it and are going to make some 14 changes. So we'll uh, we'll see how uh, just the, how the BC Paramedic Association responds to those changes and just how in favor of those policy changes they are. And of course, uh, I haven't previewed everything that's going to be here on the show. Uh, just to kick off the second half hour, I'll be speaking with uh, organizers of a trucking rally, a log trucking rally specifically, that is going to be traveling from Merritt down to Vancouver to protest at UBCM. They are protesting curtailments and mill closures and just the hundreds of job losses that have come as a result by the downturn in the forestry industry here in British Columbia. So that's going to be quite the scene. Hundreds of... Well, I, over 100 trucks, I can say that for certain, are going to be heading down the Coquihalla from Merritt to Vancouver. So that's going to be quite the scene for people to see if they are, in fact, around there. And, uh, man, getting over 100 logging trucks into downtown Vancouver, that's going to be, that's going to be something. So stick around to find out more about that organizer and his plans for... Uh, when they do hit the road and when they do get to Vancouver and what message they are going to be sending to the politicians that are attending the Union of BC Municipalities convention here this week. Of course, it is heading into day three on this Wednesday. So, there you go. You're all set for the show. It's going to be a good one, like I mentioned off the top. And to start things off, I'm going to be talking about mosquitoes. So that's going to be coming up here after the break. Stick around. <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here, and as always, thank you so much for joining me. A third person has died of eastern equine encephalitis in Massachusetts, racing the reported death toll recently from the rare mosquito-borne illness to six across the U.S. And that victim is among 10 confirmed human cases of the illness previously reported in Massachusetts. That's according to the state's Department of Public Health. To talk about this and the issue of mosquito-borne illnesses in general, I am joined now by Dr. David Fisman, who is an epidemiologist at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who don't know, I mean, can you, I, I tried to explain it, but it's it's kind of difficult for me. Uh, can you tell me what Triple E is and if it is something that we should really be aware of and wary of here as Canadians? Well, um, yeah, there, there, there are actually a bunch of these things. They're, the whole basket of them is called arboviruses, which stands for arthropod-borne viruses. Arthropods are insects like mosquitoes. And there's a group of viruses, one of which is eastern equine encephalitis. There's a western equine encephalitis. There's Jamestown Canyon virus, snowshoe hair virus, all, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, St. Louis encephalitis. What, what many of these viruses have in common is that they're actually viruses that cycle between mosquitoes and birds and eastern equine is one of those so you know most of the time the action humans aren't involved in the action there's what's called an amplification cycle where you can start off with an infected bird or an infected mosquito start with an infected bird it gets fed on by a mosquito that mosquito then goes and bites a couple of other birds infects them they get fed on by mosquitoes so you have more infected mosquitoes infected and that kind of builds and builds and builds until you have enough mosquitoes infected that you get kind of um, 
um, what, what they call bridge vectors, that's mosquitoes that'll either bite a bird or bite a human, those things start being infected with a higher probability and one of them chances to bite a human and, and gets them sick. So we're kind of collateral damage for a lot of these things. The same, the same is true for West Nile virus, for example, which is all another arboviral infection. Uh, humans are kind of collateral damage. So the real action is going on between the mosquitoes and the birds with this amplification cycle and things by the end of summer, things have kind of reached a bit of a peak. Now, probably what you're interested in, in talking about is, you know, this, and Eastern has been, Eastern equine's been around for a while, and, and this does happen at the end of, of summer in, in New England, and I believe there's some cases in Michigan this year as well, uh, in Connecticut. And it does happen, you know, it's, it's rare, as you say, it's unfortunate, um, but it's something that happens. The question is, is this more than previously? Mm-hmm. You know, is this an unusual number of cases? And it seems to be getting there. You know, usually it's a couple of cases in a bad year, and now they're up to six. So the question is, what's going on? And there's a couple possibilities there. You know, one possibility is we're actually getting better at diagnosing these things because we're probably under-diagnosing them and, and, and missing a lot of this. Another possibility is that the risk is actually going up. And, and that's compatible with patterns that we're seeing with a lot of other insect-borne diseases, and it probably has to do with climate change. Um, and I'll stop talking there and let you get a word in edgewise. Um, yeah, so just in terms of, I guess, just any of these diseases as a whole, we don't have to specifically talk about Triple E here, but uh, when we're talking about um, you know, bug-borne illnesses, is this something that we as humans should be taking more and more seriously, I guess? Like, is there stuff we can do to protect ourselves, or should we just... You know, I mean, they are still pretty rare. So is it something that we really need to concern ourselves with at this point? Yeah, I, I think they, I think they are rare. And, you know, I mean, I live in, in the great city of Toronto where, Lord knows, in 2019, I'm probably at much more risk crossing the street in the city with our, our traffic death situation mm-hmm. than I am for, uh, you know, a, a disease uh, transmitted by mosquito bites. So I, th- I think it's important to put it in put it in perspective, put it in context. We haven't had a lot of eastern equine historically in Canada. We know it's here because, for example, dogs have, you can do blood tests on dogs, and folks at University of Montreal have done this, and find out that dogs are infected with this virus because they have antibody against it. So we know it's around in mosquitoes, and we probably have had infections in humans and missed them. That said, I think the bigger picture here is that mosquito-borne diseases are becoming a bigger problem and tick-borne diseases are becoming a bigger problem, and that's probably because of warming. And um, the important thing to know is that biting rates for mosquitoes, which is, you know, how many times a mosquito bites pretty much determines how transmissible a mosquito-borne infection is going to be. Biting rates go up when it gets warmer. So as it gets warmer and warmer further and further further north for mosquito-borne diseases, what you have is kind of a tipping point and you have diseases that weren't previously able to uh, be maintained in a population are now able to be maintained in a population and for diseases like Lyme disease for example and some other diseases including viral diseases spread by ticks ticks in Canada are expanding their ranges in a similar way as as temperatures get warmer. It also, the time from being a larva, basically being a little worm that's going to grow up into a mosquito or what have you, until you're actually biting mosquito gets shorter and shorter as the weather gets warmer. So there's a bigger picture here, which is that insect-borne diseases are probably on the up 
because it's getting warmer in northern North America. Uh, I'm here with uh, epidemiologist Dr. David Fisman. So, I mean, when we're talking about global warming um, as as a, a huge factor, it sounds like in in just the prevalence of some of these diseases and the amount that they are able to spread. Um, I, I guess I mean here when you were talking about tick-borne illnesses, that's probably a bigger issue here. Um, you know, and when we're talking about the interior BC than than mosquitoes, because yeah. mosquitoes are not a huge issue here. Um, but uh, I mean, is this just when we're talking about Lyme disease specifically, I know that's a, a topic that's been getting a lot more uh, play recently. And when we see, you know, more celebrities and stuff are speaking out about it, the issue and things along those lines. So it's just something that we're being more and more aware of. Um, I guess when we're talking about ticks, I know it's really specific to certain kinds of ticks as well. But um, I mean, just what are, what what concern should we have as humans about these things? I mean, it's it's not something that necessarily has been taken very seriously from a medical perspective for a long time, but it's starting to get to that point. Um, I guess it's just yeah. about raising more awareness and just seeing more cases that kind of makes it a little bit yeah. more scary for people. And that's going to sort of drive home the message that we need to take things a little more seriously. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the happy news is that DEET based, you know, D-E-E-T mm -hmm. based mosquito repellents work for all these critters. <laughs> so DEET keeps ticks away, DEET keeps mosquitoes away. So, you know, use it. That's, that's kind of the mainstay of pre prevention. If you're going to be out in a, uh, you know, a wooded area, you're going to be out in the wilderness camping, use the bug repellent. Uh, that's, that's probably your, 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 your first line of defense. Um, for me, as someone who works in the public health field, I think the most important component of this is letting public health authorities, whether it's a local health unit or provincial body like BC, CDC, or Public Health Ontario here in Ontario have the resources to actually do public health surveillance. So, you know, surveillance sounds creepy, <laughs> Big Brother's watching, but for public health surveillance, it means we're basically counting the cases. And if we don't have the tools to do that, we don't have the lab tools to diagnose them, we don't have the IT tools to, to actually have efficient systems that keep track of how much disease there is, we're basically flying blind. And so I, th I think it's really important to invest in strengthening public health systems, not even around prevention, but around just knowing what the heck is going on. Because if you've got a moving target, and we would expect insect-borne disease in Canada and a bunch of other things, including food, food and waterborne disease, to be moving targets with climate change, then you have to invest in those systems that let you know if something's a problem or not a problem. Um, and that's kind of the boring behind-the-scenes <laughs> stuff with public health, but you, you really, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you can't do anything smart if you don't know what's going on. Fair. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time here, David, but uh, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is a pretty interesting subject, and uh, as I mentioned off the top of my show here, a mosquito is responsible for some 700,000 deaths a year, so um, obviously yeah. something that we need to pay attention to. They're, they're bad, little, bad little creatures. Thank you. Awesome. That was Dr. David Fisman, epidemiologist with the Dalai Lana School of Medicine uh, at uh, the University of Toronto. So coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking about a logging rally that is taking place as a bunch of trucks head from Merritt to UBCM in Vancouver. I'll be talking about that after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. 
You're listening to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Radio NL. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, there's going to be a lot of noise for those at UBCM later today as many logging trucks are set to make their way to Vancouver to protest dozens of mill closures or curtailments along with the hundreds of job losses that have occurred across BC as a result. This event is being organized by a couple of people from the Kamloops area, and here to talk about that is Howard McKimmon. So, Howard, uh, thank you so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Uh, okay, so tell me about this rally and sort of what you guys have in store. Like, how many logging truckers do you have set to participate here today? I just got word that there was 100 trucks go through Cache Creek heading to Merritt. And you guys are all meeting up in Merritt and then heading down to Vancouver, right? Yeah, the bulk of us are meeting in Merritt. Uh, we're going we're gonna to meet another coalition of trucks out of the north uh, in Hope. We'll be picking up trucks in Chilliwack, Surrey. And then we're going to go on into the city. Now, that's going to be quite the sight, I guess, for anybody who's going to be, uh, you know, driving around and, and might see, um, you know, all of this this big convoy that you guys have going. That's going to be um, pretty pretty interesting sight for people to see. So, uh, what what sort of your um, schedule like at this time? What time are you planning to leave Merritt? Well, we're leaving at ten o'clock sharp, with or without whoever's here at the time. So we're pulling out on the highway at ten sharp. Okay, so then uh, you probably get into Vancouver early this afternoon. Um, I guess what what exactly is it that uh, the message that you're trying to send when you guys get there? What what are you hoping to tell the people that are at UBCM later today? Um, and and what is your message? The message simply is is that we can't continue in this in this environment um, with the high stumpage. Uh, our small town BC forestry communities are, are dying a slow death with mill closures and curtailments. People in this industry can't tolerate much more. We have people that are going broke. Families that are not getting a paycheck for the last five months. And the government really needs to take a long, hard look at it fast and make some changes to how they calculate the stumpage and get this problems moving again. Um, I guess as you're organizing this rally, I mean, is there a lot of fear amongst the people that are participating in this, um, you know, that there is the potential for job losses, you know, not not very far down the road? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we've been talking nonstop with the people that are directly involved with the force industry, truck drivers and, and you know, loggers, uh, young families that, that work in uh, bring their bring their paychecks home from the horse industry, and they're devastated. They don't know where to turn. They don't know how they're going to how they're going to make their um, their next mortgage payment or or put the groceries on the table next month. What what has the situation been like for you? Have you you know as a, as a logging trucker yourself, have you seen a, a decrease in the amount of work that you're getting, or even just the amount of work that's available? I mean, what what's been your experience? It's absolutely huge. Um, I haven't. I've, I've been idle for five months, barely, barely getting by. Um, you know, I've had to had to make uh, curtailments myself to payments and whatnot to uh, get us this far. I'm, I'm fearful for the families and the people that work for me, and I just, uh, you know, I, I want to see a resolution so people can go home at night and put their lunchbox on the counter and, and uh, you know, relax and take a sigh of relief that things are back back to normal again. 
Um, uh, Howard, when you do get to UBCM later today, I mean, do you have anything lined up in terms of uh, a meeting with anybody, or is you just you guys going down there to sort of make some noise? We're going to go down there and make some noise. Um, I'd like to apologize to the people of Vancouver ahead of time that we're not there to inconvenience anybody, but we really do need to get our message across. For every, for every logging job that is lost in a the community, there's probably 10 or 15 other jobs that are affected also, you know, right from your, right from your coffee shops to your beauty parlors to Walmarts. And, um, you know, it's, we just like to make a, a stand and, and show the people that we care about BC. I'm here with uh, Howard McKimmon organizing a, a logging truck rally to UBCM today. Um, so just in terms of the stumpage fees, because I know that's something that has been talked about quite a bit. I've spoken with some union reps who have also mentioned a need for a change in stumpage, um, and you had brought it up earlier as well, I guess. How, how do you see that affecting the industry? Why do you think that's such an important piece to, to alter, and, and, and what do you think will be the biggest impact as a result if they were to listen? I know it doesn't seem like something that uh, is super on their radar at this point in time, when it comes to government officials, it doesn't seem to be something they're super interested in looking at. But um, you know, if you if you are able to kind of get that message across, and you are able to sort of at least raise the subject to get it being uh, spoken about a little bit more, I guess what what about stumpage fees? Do you think will have the biggest impact on being able to sort of restore some of what has been lost in this industry? Okay, well, they need to parallel other provinces. Um, if you look at the scenario right now, lots of Lots of people from the the North Interior, Hunter Mile House, Williams Lake, Quail, they've left BC to go to Alberta to log. Um, their stumpage system is is totally different than ours. Huge, hugely. We're talking forty to forty five dollars difference in in stumpage, and that's huge. And Alberta is selling into the same markets that BC are. So there's something desperately wrong with our stumpage system. Um, I mean, the talk is, for a lot of people, they say the biggest cost right now is getting mill or uh, lumber from from the forest to the mill, and obviously that's part of a, a big job for for you as a, a logging trucker. Um, I mean, do you think do you think that will change as a result of stumpage fees? That's the sort of the the big spot where you might see the that's biggest the impact. Big, that's the place we got to start. That's the place we got to start. So I guess uh, just to, to kind of follow things up here and, and sort of t end, uh, end things up here, Howard, um, you know, you're heading down to UBCM. You get down there this early afternoon. You're going to make a whole bunch of noise. Um, I guess, you know, what, what will the scene look like, do you think, for, well, for people that do see what's going on down there? Can you kind of explain uh, or describe to me what it is you guys are going to be doing? You'll obviously be down there with your big convoy of trucks. Are you guys going to, you know, get out on the street with some posters or sort of what exactly uh, will things look like once you get down to downtown? Town Vancouver. Well, if you can see the, if you can see what's happening here, right in Merritt, right now, I'm watching, I'm watching trucks roll in. Uh, <laughs> 10, 20, 30, 40 trucks just rolled into the parking lot here. Um, we have signs. We have people on the ground. We have crews. We have logging pickups. It's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So you've obviously this was kind of organized as a logging truck rally, but you're saying there's actually, you know, it's a lot more than just truckers that are attending this thing now. You bet. It's everybody that this is impacting throughout the communities, force-based communities. It's everybody.
we've got we've got trailer manufacturers we've got uh people that are working in the downtown core selling groceries they're here it's it's big all right well it's definitely going to be a sight for many to see and we'll definitely be keeping our eye for how things are going and and tracking your progress on your way to vancouver today thanks so much for doing this howard i really appreciate you taking the time okay Thank you very much. All right. That was Howard McKimmon as he organizes a logging truck rally from Merritt to UBCM later today. Coming up after the break, the province announced changes coming to 911. I'll be speaking with the BC Paramedic Association after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. And as always, thank you so much for listening. It is Wednesday, September 25th. Earlier this week, Health Minister Adrian Dix said 14 changes will be coming to 911 here in the province. The changes were recommended by independent investigators following a case last year in Vancouver when it took paramedics over half an hour to get to a woman who had called for help. In November, 56-year-old Tracy Gunderson, a downtown Eastside resident with a drug addiction, called 911 saying she was bleeding profusely. Paramedics who responded to the call ran into issues when it came to her high-rise building. Doors and elevators in her secure building were locked. Firefighters with master keys were called in too late. And by the time they were able to get to her, she had no pulse. Here to talk about these, this and what the changes are is the executive director of BC Paramedics Association, Scott Ramey. Scott, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thanks for having us, Jeff. So I guess let me just get a broad overview of these 14 recommendations from you. A lot of them seem kind of bizarre to me that they actually weren't already in place. But obviously, uh, you know, the BC Paramedics Association must be in favor of these changes, uh, you know, so these kinds of situations don't happen again. Definitely the, uh, the Paramedics Association focuses on the paramedic practice and how we can improve patient care throughout the province. Um, so we welcome any recommendations that can help improve the system. Uh, so, broadly speaking, um, anytime we can improve processes and improve the system, especially around communication and partnerships, then that's definitely a good thing. Now, in this specific situation that sort of led to this call for changes, obviously it was an issue when it came to access to a high-rise building. Um, I mean, that must be a pretty common thing that paramedics would run into, especially in a place like Vancouver. Um, I guess, were you surprised that it took people, uh, paramedics to get over half an hour to, uh, you know, respond to this specific woman's call? And, uh, I mean, is this uh, a common problem that paramedics have to deal with, particularly when we look at bigger cities? Definitely, um, it's it's a very unfortunate situation for for this particular individual, uh, but these do these delays do happen. We know that uh, from the research, um, particularly there's a study published in 2016 uh, by a paramedic researcher named Ian Drennan, who looked at out of hospital cardiac arrests in high rise buildings. And what we know from this research is that anybody who lives above the third floor is at a disadvantage. And in particular, uh, anybody above the 25th floor in this particular study actually did not survive at all. So we know that access is a difficult problem in the high-rise apartment buildings. And uh, that would be what we call our vertical response time. So even though we have a response time um, getting from where the ambulance is starting to where the patient is, um, that's not where the clock actually stops. Uh, reaching the patient uh, in a vertical manner up a high-rise is definitely difficult as well. Uh, how come the third floor? Is there a particular reason for, for why the third floor seems to be you know, okay, but above that isn't? 
when they did their data analysis, uh, that would be the point likely where they started to see uh, more significant delays in accessing patients, where it was um, statistically um, relevant to the situations. Hmm. I just found that interesting stat. Um, so a lot of these recommendations that I was kind of looking over, some of them seem a little bit crazy to me that they weren't already in place. Like uh, recommendation number seven says um, not that this necessarily applies specifically to, to high-rises, but resuscitation equipment should always be carried to the patient's side or stage nearby initially unless it is absolutely clear that the patient will not require resuscitation. I mean, that just seems like something that would always kind of be in place. Like, you, you never know what the situation might be. Um, were there any of these recommendations that you looked at or at the association as a whole looked at and thought um, you know it's kind of bizarre that these weren't already in place and are obviously you know very happy to see some of these things now being um, obviously recommendations that are going to be put in place so will be made mandatory uh, well I, I don't have specific details uh, not being involved in this incident but mm-hmm. uh, definitely anything to optimize patient care and ensure that we have the right equipment and right resources at the right time is extremely important I think the big take home to, from from this incident and from any incident really is that uh, healthcare is actually very dangerous and paramedicine is part of healthcare and uh, one of the keys is that uh, the third leading cause of death, um, you know, in North America, is actually adverse events and medical errors uh, within the healthcare system. So it's extremely important. Things like recommendation number twelve to look at the patient safety and learning system, and recommendation number eleven to do um, ongoing in-depth reviews. The quality improvement and uh, patient safety processes, and making sure that those are enhanced and effective are the most important thing because all clinicians, no matter what part of medicine you practice in, need the opportunity to improve and learn and make patient care safer. Uh, I'm joined on the phone with uh, BC Paramedic Association President or Executive Director, excuse me, Scott Ramey. Now, Scott, um, what is, I mean, you you mentioned there recommendation number um, 14, I believe, when we're talking about um, ja- developing regular meetings. Um, I mean, why is this something that hasn't already been going on? Is that, um, you know, isn't that something that should always be ongoing when we're talking about constantly reviewing the process and how things are done? Um, you know, now that it's going to look at doing this every six months, um, it just seems bizarre that that wasn't something that was, you know, already in place and reviewing, um, you know, these the regulations and, and the way that uh, calls are responded to. Um, I guess, how, how is this going to actually be a change for what was already happening? I think it comes down to uh, resources, really. Um, In British Columbia, as a provincial paramedic service um, and servicing so many different communities, uh, there's so many other uh, partners in those different communities and different responders. So ensuring a regular ongoing communication with all of these different communities uh, definitely requires the resources to be able to uh, visit everybody, set up these meetings, have these conversations, and actually do the work to share the information and so share the policies and processes and system improvements together. Okay, so even even though these um, it's going to be recommended that these meetings take place more frequently, I mean, I imagine it's still going to be quite a challenge to to make sure that all parties are available at a specific time. So, um, I mean, confident, obviously, that it's going to have to take place, but just confident in the ability for for these uh, member organizations to to get that done and make sure they are having uh, proper reviews. Uh, certainly, I think I think it's all about um, process and efficiency, and uh, 
setting up a system where this happens and it doesn't have to be uh, acted on every time. It's regular meetings and a regular process and regular communications. Uh, so there's definitely areas in that respect that can be improved uh, from our perspective. Um, a couple more questions here for you, Scott, before I let you go. Just uh, in terms of the communication between firefighters and uh, paramedics, I mean, is, is that a, an ever an issue? Because I know uh, recommendation number five saying, you know, fire departments should be dispatched where there is any suspicion of access delay to a particular building. Um, I mean, isn't that something that should be happening already? Like, why, why is that not happening? Is it just difficult for, for the two separate emergency services to have that really close communication? Or, or why is that not happening now? Um, some of that has to do with the overall process. Uh, all, all the 911 calls in British Columbia are processed through the E911 communication center. And then there's um, a split in that process where, where the calls are determined what the primary agency is that's required. And then it's sent over, in our case, to BC Emergency Health Services, uh, where it's put through a medical priority dispatch system that uh, that analyzes the, the priority and the type of emergency and the resources that are needed. So improving that communication for tiered response is definitely a uh, an area that uh, could be worked on. Um, I believe the report mentioned uh, making it automated um, and the ability to send the information over electronically, which would certainly improve the process as far as sharing that information. Uh, so th those decisions are clinically driven based on patient information to the best of the ability uh, that the call taker is able to get from the callers. And uh, certainly I'm aware of systems that do allow that to uh, to be sent over electronically to shave some of the time off the call and information sharing process. Okay. Um, it makes sense. It just, uh, you know, it just seems uh, some, sometimes a little weird that, you know, the, the, con the communication isn't as maybe tight-knit as we from the public perspective would expect. Uh, one more question here for you. Uh, just in terms of this whole issue around high-rises, I mean, is there um, regulations or anything in place to make sure that emergency services do have quicker access to high-rise buildings? Because, like, in this specific case, it had to do with the fact that, you know, specific fobs were required, um, and then the, the, the elevators were locked, the doors were locked, and it was just difficult to gain access to the building. Um, you know, I live in a high-rise myself here in downtown Kamloops, and I also have to use fobs. I mean, um, is that always an issue for paramedics or is there any policy in place where those builders, people who run apartment buildings, you know, have to make sure there is easy access for emergency services? No, quite, quite specifically, um, it is part of the, the fire code as far as access to, to the buildings for the fire department, but there's nothing specific for paramedic services to be able to access the building. Um, another example is um, if you look at some of the intercom systems that work based off the telephone system, if the caller remains on the line with the 911 service uh, receiving instructions over the phone and the intercom is hooked up to the telephone, a lot of the times we can't even get into the building because the phone is not free to, to access the building. Uh, so there's, there's definitely um, some problems in accessing buildings and, and not having um, access to a universal key system. Do you think that's uh, something that, I mean, it's not part of these recommendations for what I can tell. I mean, is that something that you think should be looked at in the future? I, th I think the uh, the recommendations are there to find a solution to this. Okay. So that is definitely one potential solution. Ideally, I think engaging the frontline paramedics in finding the solution is the way to go because they're the people that are out there in the field. They're the ones that are doing the job. Um, they'll see all the difficulties and be able to figure out where 
they they encounter these and uh, a lot of times you'll find that best solution is floating around out there with somebody that's uh, that's experienced this and has an idea Right on. Well, uh, hopefully that we can uh, get this all sorted out. I know it's uh, kind of a scary situation that, uh, you know, this one woman had last November and obviously resulted in a tragic situation, but we don't want to see that happening anymore. So hopefully uh, these regular meetings and these new recommendations will help avoid similar situations in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me, Scott. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. That was Scott Ramey, Executive Director of the BC Paramedic Association. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. So thanks again to all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And as always, remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.